The gospel and politics, yes. Uh, Why are we talking about this today? Four reasons. Number one, there is, as you may have heard, this little election coming up this fall. And because we are seeking to make disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, in a multiracial and multi-generational environment, it just means there are going to be people with lots of different filters and perspectives when it comes to this topic, but number two, nonetheless, no matter your filter, I'm believing that we are going to be a people who handle this election well because we want to show the city how much we love one another. Jesus says, all men will know you're my disciples when you fight about the election. Oh wait, he didn't say that, did he? He said, all men will know you're my disciples when you what? Love one another. So what do we want to be known for as a church? Oh, this election gives us the opportunity to be something unprecedented together. And number three, apart from the election, you just live in Austin, Texas. Great place, right? But Austin's the state capital. And therefore, it gets hard at times to have a conversation about faith or God or church uh, without the, the subject, the idea of politics being brought up and people asking you, so where does your church stand politically? Which honestly, I think is kind of a shame because it just shows to what degree uh, the church and the idea of politics have become intertwined. And I long for the day, and, and I hope you do too, where when that conversation begins that people's first question is, wow, you, you belong to a church I mean, how is it? What's it like to be able to serve so many people? What's it like to be a part of a people that are so generous and care for the city so much? And now number four, because this issue is so prominent, gets brought up, we've got to speak to it. So let's ask, therefore, what does it mean politically to be a Christian? What party are you supposed to belong to? Well, The answers, I hope, will begin to emerge as we unpack Jesus' answer to a similar line of questioning. Let's take a look. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, here on the screen for you. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He said, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked him, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they said. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. That's God's word. So here we are in Mark, and along with Mark, Matthew, and Luke, all the synoptic gospel writers, they all record the same incident. And the question this incident raises is this, what are the politics of Jesus, right? I mean, that's actually what the questioners are all about here. you, You can see he's surrounded by questioners who are bringing up a hot button issue of the day to try to smoke him out. That's what they're doing. And you may not have read this story in that light before, but as we go along, we're going to see that because of who is there, 
of what's being asked that right off the bat, if you were there, if you were a person in the first century in that conversation, you would have known it was a politically volatile one fueled by a politically loaded question. All to get Jesus to answer, what party are you a member of Jesus? So to understand his answer and what it means, I want to look at three concepts and try to make some application for our hearts today. Let's look at here in the passage or from the passage. Number one, the revolutionary question, revolutionary answer, and a revolutionary revolution. Number one, we'll begin. let's begin. The revolutionary question, here it is. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And again, this is a revolutionary question, literally. To understand, though, Jesus' answer, I think, we believe, you got to understand first two things. Who's asking it and what exactly is being asked? And so let's go first here. Who is asking the question, right? Well, look who it is. It may surprise you. It says this. It's the Pharisees and who? The Herodians, yeah, not the Sadducees. Remember, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if you know your, your Bible a bit, you know they were religious opponents. They clashed over the Jewish scriptures. But look who's questioning Jesus here. The Pharisees and the Herodians, who were political opponents. The Herodians, if you don't know, were supporters of Roman imperial power, Roman laws, Roman customs, because Rome had conquered Israel in that day. But the Pharisees were not. The Herodians were notorious for their immoral, sensual behavior, modeled after King Herod. And the Pharisees, well, they couldn't have been any different or further apart politically than the Herodians. The Pharisees were known for their strict moral behavior, their barely concealed rejection of Roman political power. Both parties were politically active and drivers of Jewish culture, and each had a vision for the future of the nation. And now maybe you're beginning to see that although times have changed in some ways, they really haven't in others. Because what do you have here? Well, broadly speaking, you've got a liberal party, more or less, right? And a conservative party. One focuses on one thing, one focuses on the other, but neither has a focus on Jesus. Each has an agenda in asking the question, and the agenda was to try to trap him and look for a means to write him off, push him to the margins. So that's who was asking, Pharisees, Herodians, but what? is being asked here. Well, here it is. They go on to ask, should we pay or shouldn't we? So they're referring to a tax, not just about taxes in general, but this question is about a specific task. And this is important because you can see that this is about a specific tax when Jesus, in a moment, when he asks for a denarius. Now, there were all sorts of taxes on all sorts of things in the Roman Empire. Again, Times really haven't changed, have they? But there was this one tax called the tributum, or what was more commonly known as the head tax, a tax on every head in the empire. And that tax was a tax of one denarius. And when that tax, the head tax, was put into effect about 25 years before this, circa 6 BC, or 6 6 BC, yeah, there was an insurrection among the Jews. And it wasn't because of the amount but because of what it symbolized. What was the head tax? Well, the tax was a tax. 
for the privilege of being a citizen of Caesar. How nice of him, right? And 25 years before, when the head tax was put in place, there was an armed revolt among the people led by a man named Judas the Galilean. And Judas the Galilean, as history recorded, did three things. First, Judas called on all Jews to refuse to pay the head tax. Second, with an armed band, he went in and cleared out the temple of all foreigners. And third, he said, God will be our king, not Caesar. So let's ask, what happened to Judas the Galilean? Well, as you might imagine, Judas the Galilean was caught, tortured, and executed. Yeah. Now here, it's 25 years later. And the same thing is happening all over again. Because in the previous chapter, in Mark 12, Jesus has just cleansed the temple. He's just cleaned the the temple out. And here now he comes preaching about what? The kingdom of God, that God will be our king, not Caesar. So two out of these three things have happened. But what Jesus, excuse me, what hasn't happened, or the thing that Jesus hasn't done, is speak to the third thing to the issue of the head tax. Now, can you see? There's so much at stake here. Yes, Jesus is being questioned about whose side is he on, on one level. But on another level, there's more going on. Because he's being asked, can you see? He's being asked, are you like Judas the Galilean? Are you a revolutionary too? See, he cleansed the temple, preached about the kingdom of God, just like you've done, Jesus, and we remember how he went about it. How are you going to go about it? And their motive is revealed, and they're asking about the head tax, because the head tax wasn't just any tax. It was the issue of a day. It would be like asking some massive hot-button question of a day. It was so hot, so loaded, that it caused people to take up arms against their government. That's how big a deal it was. So where do you stand on this crucial, the crucial issue, Jesus? Oh, it's a trap. Can you see to be sure? Or as a gospel writer called it, hypocrisy. Because on one hand, if Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, he is like Judas the Galilean. He's calling for an armed revolt against the government which means he'll be crushed by Herod's military. But on the other hand, if he says, yes, pay the tax, all the people will know, all the folks who have been following him and hearing him teach on the kingdom of God will know he's just been blowing smoke. You say, well, why is that? How would they know that? Well, listen, here. You and I, we, I do this too. We read the Bible, it's inevitable, through our Western modern cultural grid. For example, when when you hear the words, uh, when you read the words, the kingdom of God. I mean, what does that mean? What What do you think it means? Typically, most people completely spiritualize that, right? It just exists up in the air, in the clouds somewhere. We, we privatize it, but all throughout history, up until about the Enlightenment or so, faith and the public square and laws were always intertwined. And, but because the Enlightenment came and cast doubt on the stuff about God and faith, it said you can't really prove God or faith. You ought to just put it over there. Don't bring it in here. See, we've moved faith away from the public square to something only internal. But 
When Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he quoted who? The Old Testament prophets who said what? That God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, deals with real injustice, real oppression, real poverty, and poverty, injustice, and oppression show up where? In our laws, in the public square. And when Jesus shows up, his first sermon, Isaiah, excuse me, uh, in, in Luke 4, it's a lengthy quote from Isaiah all about this. So if, therefore, Jesus says to his Jewish audience, hey, hey, the kingdom of God is like some nice new zen I'm going to bring you, this inner peace kind of thing. But he doesn't say the kingdom of God is going to show up in the public square, in the laws that you make, then they'll know. He's just blowing smoke, and they'll walk away. Here's his dilemma. If he says, yes, pay the head tax, he loses the people. If he says, no, don't pay it, the authorities will crush him like they crushed Judas. How do you like that? (laughs) That's called a bit of a tight spot, right? I mean, when's the last time you got asked an interview question like that? when you're on the job. So can you see why it's literally a revolutionary question? They're asking what we all want to know. Jesus, are you a revolutionary bringing the kingdom of God? And maybe some of you have watched the the presidential candidate debates on TV and what are the best parts, to be honest? It's always the first 10 minutes, you know, where they, they bring out their zingers, right? They trade insults and stuff. You know, the one-liners they've been working on for like a month to unload and yeah. But at a certain point in those debates, they just get asked these really hot button questions, right? And what do they do? Yeah, they tend to not answer, right? They hem and they haw and they avoid. And you, right? Uh, the audience, even the moderators sometimes, they, they get really mad and they said, why can't you just answer the question? But let me ask you, is Jesus's audience mad here? Hmm? Are they angry? Do they ask for clarification? No, at other times in his teaching, they do. What do you mean by this, Jesus? But they don't hear. No, what does it say? It says they were amazed at his teaching. In other words, they learned something, and you only learn something when it's clear. Hmm. So if you think he's avoiding the question, if you think they just didn't get it, no, 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 you're wrong. They understood perfectly what he was doing. And while they may not, and you may not, like the implications, everyone understood he was answering the question in a new and revolutionary kind of way. Let's look at that. Number two, his revolutionary answer. So what's his answer? Verse 17, Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar or pay back to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. What's happening here? Jesus is refusing three things. And I hope you'll consider them as well. He's refusing simplicity, complacency, and supremacy. We'll look at them briefly in turn. First, Jesus here in his answer, he's refusing political simplicity. And and you can see that because he doesn't just give a nice yes or no answer, right? To what appeared to be a simple yes or no question. They're asking, is paying the tax to Caesar right or wrong? Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? Yes or no? One or the other. You can't have it both ways. Jesus, he's in front of a crowd. Can you see? of single-issue voters. That's what's going on. Yes, and this group is for him. No, and that group is against him or for him. 
And maybe you feel, I hope you do. There are issues that are totally clear, morally clear that determine how you vote, right? But hear this. For every issue that you swear uh, on your grandmother's autographed Laura Bush coffee table book, right, is, is clear, or you swear on your, your granddad's Mondale Ferraro bumper sticker, right, that's a morally clear, spiritually clear issue, there's someone that's equally as convinced from the other side it's morally and spiritually clear. And I know some of you may not like that, but the good news and the bad news is that You're here, you're wrestling. We're wrestling with Jesus' response to the single-issue voters of his day. And this this is really important for us to consider. I I mean, think about it. Jesus is asked a yes or no question about the issue of a day, and he doesn't take a clear stand on it. If he says no, he's killed, right? If he says yes, he loses his ministry. Now let me ask you. Do you think Jesus did this because he was afraid of those people? Hmm? Do you think Jesus was afraid of death? Think he's afraid of being killed? I mean, he was the most courageous, right? The bravest human being to ever live. Would you call him fearful? Would you say he's a moral compromiser who won't take a stand? Hmm? Maybe, just maybe, he's trying to show us something here. We could all learn from. Now, there are some issues I believe are really morally and spiritually clear. Not a lot of room for compromise, if at all. The issues of deep personal conviction, born out of wrestling with the scriptures, and I may just fight you on them. Yeah. And yet, I've come to understand there are people who understand that issue from another side, from a deep search of scripture themselves. I may not like it. I may not agree with it because they're wrong. Just kidding, it's a joke, it's a joke, 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 joke. I can respect it. See, Jesus, when he talks about our relationship with himself, he's so clear, right? I mean, he's super simple. Uh, about a mile where I grew up, in, uh, from where I grew up in the Dallas area, there's this really old school, awesome diner. I mean, every old timer in town goes there, gets their muffin and coffee and paper for the day. And it's a place called Joe's. And the sign on the building says this. It says, eat at Joe's. It's pretty simple, right? I mean, what's the message telling you to do? What? Eat at Joe's, right? Yeah. And a lot of Jesus' teaching is like that, right? It's eat at Joe's kind of stuff. Follow me, obey me, pick up your cross and follow me. Pretty clear about that. But when he's asked a question about his relationship to the state, to politics, he gives a nuanced answer. Jesus, which party are you in? How would you vote on this issue? Would you support the liberal party here or the conservative party there? He didn't give him the answer that they're looking for. He didn't give me the answer I'm looking for, right? It would make it a lot easier, wouldn't it? It would make it so, so simple, but he doesn't do that. And so what we can't do is do what Jesus himself didn't say. Because here's what we put in the mouth of Jesus. Jesus would vote for this party because of this issue. Because when he was asked about the issue of his day, he didn't make it clear. He, but he does do something else altogether incredible, which we'll get to in a moment. So please don't do to Jesus what he didn't do to himself. If you do this, if I do this, if the church does this, if we attach Jesus to one party, listen, we lose the moral high ground in culture. We just do. 
and we mix God and Caesar, God and government, in a way Jesus never did. So, he resists being too simple politically, but look what he does immediately, consecutively. He also resists complacency. He resists being spiritually complacent. Because he doesn't say, hey, well then just drop out of the system. Nor does he say, hey, you know, just burn the whole thing down, baby. Make up a new, new system. The whole thing's corrupt. Get a new one. No, no, no. What does he do next? Well, he asks for a denarius. We got a picture of it, and we know a lot about these because there's lots of them floating around in museums today. And Jesus asks, he's holding the coin, right? What you call an object lesson. And he asks whose portrait is on it and whose inscription is on it. Well, the image, of course, was Caesar's, and the inscription read this Son of the God Augustus, Pontifus Maximus, high priest. So you've got to get the picture, right? Jesus, Jesus. Jesus is holding a coin in his hand with Caesar's picture. And it says, King, Son of God, High Priest. Yeah. And what does Jesus say about that coin? He says, render, that's the the Greek there, literally pay back to Caesar what Caesar's. Well, again, whose image is on it? Caesar's. Well, then give it to him. But give to God what's God's. And by using the word image, this is amazing. This is fascinating. This is basically a commentary consensus here. Jesus is saying, whatever's got Caesar's image on it, we'll go give it to him, right? I mean, it's a metal coin with a stamp. Give it to him. But give to God what has God's image on it, which is what? You, me, people, the world. Caesar can have his medal. To God belongs the world, see? And this is astounding because this is really, this is the first view of limited government here. Because up till now, even the Jews viewed their rulers as having absolute authority, couldn't be questioned. Every government up till now has said, the gods have chosen me, therefore I've got absolute power. But Jesus says, oh, no, no, don't you dare give any government that. Give Caesar, sure, your money, but give God your allegiance. Because God and the government, God and Caesar, God and a political party are not one and the same. What Caesar and God says and does are not necessarily the same. And I hope you'll say amen to that. Maybe the first thing you can agree on all morning. All right, making progress, right. And this is amazing. But he's being even more subversive than that. Because you see, Jesus actually, he changes the wording of the question on purpose. They ask him, should we pay Caesar? He doesn't say pay Caesar. He says what? You should pay Caesar back. And there's a difference. Because what does a tyrant get paid back with? hmm? What should a despot get paid back with in return for his despotism? Well, maybe he, he gets your money. But doesn't he deserve some resistance, right? I mean, Jesus is saying, you can't give Caesar in, your, in his system your allegiance. And at a certain level, he's saying, maybe you shouldn't give it your cooperation either. Look at N.T. right here. He asked, them, so he asked this. He said, had he told them to revolt? Or had he told them to pay their taxes? He had actually done neither in one sense, but in a sense, he did both. Nobody could deny that the saying of Jesus that you could not give Caesar ultimate allegiance was revolutionary. But on the other hand, nobody could say that Jesus had forbidden the payment of taxes either. 
The point of Jesus is this. Jesus the Galilean is envisioning a revolution. He is. But a different sort of revolution than Judas the Galilean. Jesus Christ was advocating neither acceptance of the system nor straightforward political revolt. Yes, Jesus is saying there will be a revolution. And yes, the temple will be cleansed, but not in the way you envision. So he resists being too simple on one hand, but he resists being complacent on the other. He says, you got to participate in the system. But he also, number three, refuses to give supremacy to the government either. Because when he said, render or pay back your taxes to the government, he's also contradicting two other political parties and mindsets of his day called the Essenes and the Zealots. And the Essenes, if you've heard of them, they were the spiritual hippies of the day. They wanted to you know, live off the grid, didn't want to live under the thumb of the man, didn't want to pay their taxes. Just leave me alone, right? I'm going to move to Montana. I love Montana. Love Montana, actually. Grandparents are from there. Montana's awesome, but if you know folks from Montana, that's their perspective up to a point. So anyway, why my family moved there, I'll just leave it at that and move on. All right. So Jesus is contradicting Morgan's family. I mean these people here. All right. By telling them, again, to pay their taxes, he's saying you've got to be involved in the system. You've got to be involved politically. On the other hand, there's another group who didn't pay their taxes called the Zealots. The zealots, one of whom Simon was actually Jesus' disciple. And they advocated radical armed overthrow of the government now. They were the activists, right? The protester, the, the Occupy Jerusalem movement. And they, they thought the solution to society's ills is arming themselves to create change. And Jesus so contradicts that as well here. So you should never think as Jesus' follower, ultimate change comes from only a political change. And yet Jesus won't quit insisting there's a higher government, a bigger and more compelling and demanding kingdom than Caesar's. Which is why at this point in the conversation, nobody even knows what to say. You come at him with a simple yes or no question. Which party are you for, Jesus? And in a few words, he leaves everyone amazed, checking their heart. He won't do it the way anyone before has done it. He won't do it the way I want him to, the way you want him to, your parents. And it's tough to swallow. It's tough to swallow. And you got to wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Deeply examine how you approach politics. And if you're here, listen, and you're just a, a one-party voter, you got to admit you might not be voting for the party Jesus may want you to, right? And of course, at this point, you're really mad. You're really mad. Or maybe actually you're really happy because I just told the people who vote for the other party they shouldn't do it, right? Now, everybody's happy and mad all at the same time. So. Again, only vote for one party, at least, at least consider the possibility that you're being too politically simplistic. But if you're here and you don't vote at all, right, you're being too complacent. How can you bring kingdom values through your vote into the public square? How can you affect the, the, the culture at large if you don't get involved, right? Try to find someone that at least you can halfway support, or if you hear and you think, man, if I, if I don't get my candidate in, all will be lost. You're giving Caesar your ultimate allegiance. And Jesus says, you can't do that. Mark 12 isn't the eat it Joe's saying of Jesus. 
So linger over, order off the menu, selah, pause, and consider. So, in the end, though, how do we have this kind of revolution Jesus is talking about? Because he is advocating a revolution. How do we get that? How do we get what he says when he says, give to God everything about your life? How do we get that? Oh, well, look at verse 15 for the answer. When Jesus says, bring me a denarius. Number three. There's an irony here, and maybe you've seen it. One king has all the coins in the world, doesn't he? And the other king has absolutely no coins at all. I mean, he can't, Jesus can't even dig in his pocket. He can't even you know, move the sofa cushions and find a single coin. And a denarius wasn't even a lot of money. It's worth about one day's wages for a common worker. And the point is you're supposed to be contrasting these two forces, two kings with two different kingdoms on the world stage. This king, new king, Jesus, is bringing an utterly different kind of revolt, a different kind of a kingship. What is it? Well, look at, look at Luke 6, briefly, where Jesus lays out the values of his kingdom and anyone who's going to be a part of it. He said, blessed are you who are what? You say it. Poor. Yours is a kingdom. Blessed are you who what? Hunger. When? Now. You'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who what? weep now. You'll laugh. Blessed are you when what? People hate you. When they exclude you, insult you, reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. What's he doing? Oh, he's comparing and contrasting his values and Caesar's values, the kingdom of man's values. And here are, from Luke 6, the four main values of the kingdom of man, right? They are power, success, comfort, and recognition. See, in the kingdom of this world, you know these values dominate, right? They just do. In this world, you think we've got to have, we think we've got to have these things to bring about change. We think we have to have power, right? To bring about change in many of our leadership's decisions in life in different areas, even the church sometimes, are made on the basis of getting those things. And we think that people without those things, oh, they're at the bottom. Why should we listen to them? The revolutions of this world advocate getting those things. We think we have to have uh, lots of money, perhaps, to bring about change. And there's no question that money can and does buy access to influence. But Jesus had no money, no super PAC behind him, no super delegates, no first-class travel between fundraising opportunities, didn't have a fancy hashtag with a million Twitter followers, right? No, no, no. But he changed the world. Without any of that, he brought a revolution that was revolutionary in itself. See, inside the kingdom of man, those four things reign. And typically anyone who ever gets to the top just rearranges the furniture, right? And excludes somebody else. Think about it. Let's go back to our nation's own history. Was it better to be free in our nation when it started? Better to be free in the colonies, right? Rather than under the the thumb of King George's tyranny. It's better to be free, right? Way better, right? But look, did racism go away just because people were free on the outside? No, the colonists revolted from King George's tyranny, but then continued another tyranny of their own. The African slave trade. Did injustice go away? No, no, no. 
it just got more diversified because now everybody could be their own mini King George. Something else, though, brought the slave trade to an end, and we'll look at that next week. All right, just to bring you back. But Jesus says here, yes, change the system, right? Uh, Changing the system matters. Good systems are better than bad systems. Limited government, better than monarchy. But you can change the system. Vote whoever in, and you're still going to have problems. Still going to have stuff. He says, let me give you a real revolution. He said, my kingdom. You don't have to have success, power, comfort, or recognition. He's a king without a coin who changed the world. No politician, right, would ever say, man, I want that. But Jesus says, the high point of my kingdom is when I get executed. Executed. Have you ever seen a king like me? He heals the sick. He feeds the poor. Spends time with the broken. Takes the lowest place in society. And he's saying here in Luke 6, if we're going to come inside his kingdom, we've got to do the same. Now, do we think and live this way? It's so hard, right? Or do we think like the zealots, perhaps? We've got to be in power to change stuff, right? Listen, if we think that, that means anything goes. And that, that's the way it works. Politicians, even pastors, will justify doing anything, right? Uh, making whatever decision. They'll take bribes, vote this way, because they believe, like we do, that anything done in the name of keeping those people in power is good. And we can see this so clearly in the central plot device of your favorite book and mine, The Lord of the Rings. Right? There's the one ring of power which gives absolute power to whoever wields it but then corrupts the person who picks it up. The ring in the book, it falls into the hands of the good guys and much of the story's about who's going to pick it up and who's not. But when you pick up the ring, absolute power, it destroys you. You fall. But we see the true king, the true citizens of the coming kingdom are always refusing to pick it up. And Sauron is only destroyed, spoiler alert, because he could never imagine that his enemies weren't like him. He imagines that they're greedy for power, hungry for control, manipulative, just like him. But Jesus says, that's not my kingdom. He says, matter of fact, I gave everything away, gave it all away. And again, you may not like this. You can say this is too simple. I don't think so. Just try living it, right? Me, try living it. So Jesus didn't say, hey, just drop out. Nor did he say, trust the system to help you. Because if you drop out, how can you defend what needs to be defended, right? How can you help who needs to be helped? Or if you trust in the system, maybe you're giving your allegiance to something. Perhaps you shouldn't be. We all have to be transferred out of the value system of the kingdom of man into the value system of the king without a coin. He says, listen, I've become poor that you could become rich. He said, I've died, I'll die without recognition that you could be known by my father in heaven. And we have to see and be moved by that because hear this, faith in Jesus isn't just faith in him to save you from your sins, although it is that, it's not less than that. It's also faith that a different kind of value system will in the long run prevail, is better, is more effective, brings about the kind of change we all really want. Do we have that? Do we live that? 
I hope that we would say yes. I hope we can try at least, man, try that. Because if we'll do that and walk out into the world, walk out into this election season, stuff will begin to change in the way we all would want. Because we've got a new allegiance, right? Right? Not to Caesar in a palace. Not to a president in a White House. But to a king without a coin. So as we approach this election, church, let's not do it through the lens of power, of success, comfort, recognition, but through humility, integrity, service, and generosity. Let's be known as servants of the king without a coin.